What that leads me to is a question of number of holy shit moments. Hello, everybody. This is episode number 89 of No Putts Given. I'm Miranda, and I've got Chris, Tony, and Harry here with me this week. Guys, Harry, Tony, welcome back. Yes, thank you. Have you recovered? No. No. Rolling from one thing to another, no respite in sight. That's all right. You know, somebody's got to look at the data, right, Tony? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so last week, Harry and Tony were, in, were at Scottsdale National doing our second edition of the ball test. So this week, they're a little weary at work, but still working very hard. What, what was the experience like, guys? I mean, 12 hours a day putting balls on tee? Yeah, that was most of it. Lather, rinse, repeat all day long. So I think we worked, I don't know, 50. Like mid-50s. For hours was. 50 something, yeah. It was like 12, 12, 11, 11 and a half, and then. Something like that. So it was whatever a lot. that is. It's all. We, we both hit about, we both placed about two and a half thousand balls and orientated on the pole and the seam 2,500 times. Okay, show me your form. So, we got in the <laughs> habit, like, we tried different things, like, you move around sometimes. It's not comfortable. No. So. Sometimes you're like, all right, I've been sitting too long, so let me stand. Other times you're in the chair and it's kind of like this gentle rock forward. The times you're so beat, you're you're just sitting down and you're like, oh, give me a ball. My back was screaming after the first day. We both took like a couple of painkillers midway through day one. <laughs> I don't know if they kicked in. It still hurt the next day. I mean, it's it's just long days. It's monotony for sure. It's um, one of the guys I know, another media guy, texted me day three, I think, and he was like, "Man, this is so cool what you guys are doing. I would love to do this." And I was like, "No, no you wouldn't. No, you don't." <laughs> it's like one of those things that sounds cool and it's cool for 15, 20 minutes, and and then you realize you have essentially five days minus fifteen or twenty minutes of this left, and yeah. it's like, all right, well, yeah, let's let's keep the balls coming. Were they tuning into the live cam? Is that how they were like, oh, this looks so cool. This would be great to be a part of. Yeah, I think some of the guys I, I play golf with here have mentioned like they watch a little bit of it here and there. So, you know, people in and out and pretty wild that we we live stream the entire thing. <laughs> and uh, I remember seeing one comment. This guy was like, just said, like, this is boring. I'm like, yeah, no shit, man. Like, we, we didn't mean for boring. it to be entertaining. Thanks for the update. Yeah. But it's not like of. you know the robot hits a ball and when it lands fireworks go off or you know something magical happens it's just <laughs> all right yeah trackman beeped yeah but it's those same people who said it was boring that three days later they came back and they're like i've had this on for three days i can't believe that you guys are still there <laughs> what was it like to be on the live cam all week were you aware that you were being filmed the whole time and that people were watching or no. did after a while the camera just became one of the crew it's kind of in and out, like, you know, some, just again, you're just like, what, what are you going to live stream everything you're doing? Like, all right, this is our third tailor made. We're going to align this one on this, on the seam. All right, it's on the T. There it goes. All right, this is our <laughs> number four tailor made. We're going to put it on the T, align on the pole. There it goes. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's literally, it's, so yeah, yeah it's, you can't do anything. I know we don't have the results of the data, Tony. You're knee deep, probably deeper than knee deep in analyzing the data. But from an eyeball test, what were some of the things that the two of you guys took away from the ball test last week? And maybe have you excited about the data? I think 
Yeah, you know, again, and there's so there's still a lot of work to be done, like to to really understand anything because you're taking data off the track, man, kind of cleaning up silly things like making sure that each ball is identified uniquely and that each shot is unique and and all this stuff that's just you know adding to the monotony of what we've already done so everything we have at this point was i would say almost entirely observational but i think harrier will agree like one of the things especially early on in the test we're like holy shit this range ball is really good (laughs) it was like yes you know, I think we got through like the first two driver tests. And I'm like, my God, this range ball is actually, it looks pretty good. Maybe you could fit with a range ball. Maybe this is all overblown. And then the iron shot started rolling in. We're like, nope. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, it, the, uh, it got a little bit different. When you say it was really good, you mean the dispersion was tight? What about it that made you go, wait a second, this is this is showing me something? When I and I say dispersion, you know, everything with dispersion is looks because you know we mm-hmm. have to kind of we're gonna have to look at the balls within groups to, and kind of factor in kind of what we see in terms of tendencies that is likely related to environmental conditions. But yeah, what we saw with the range balls is they were. They weren't short is probably how I would put it, right? They okay. weren't appreciably short. They were landing relatively close together. And so we're like, yeah, these, and the numbers weren't wildly off. They were sort of like, you know, these are actual golf ball numbers in terms of launch and spin and, and even ball speed. Then the iron shot started rolling in and you're like, oh, that's that's a lot of spin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, is, that is a non-functional amount of spin. And I will say, and again, we are very early in this process, but it's, you know, so I started looking at, I'm like, all right, from a performance perspective, what is, what is similar to the range ball in terms of, yeah, flew a pretty good distance, but you know, looks kind of weird on an iron. And it's, it's actually the Kirkland. Yeah, I was going to say the Kirkland is probably exactly like that. The Kirkland had a lot of spin yeah. off every single club, huh. at least eyeballing yeah. it at least. Um, and looking back and forth from a track man, at least it spun a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, I would play a range ball over some of the balls just by eyeballing it uh, <laughs> over some of the balls that we tested. So what what range ball was it? I was going to say, yeah, we used the the pinnacle range, which is a most you know, there's, there's a decent one according to the sources. Yeah, it's the one we it's the one we ran through Ball Lab. Yeah. Did you buy them fresh or did you go up to your club and just take a bucket? Oh, they're all they were fresh, clean. all brand new. Okay. Yeah, we got fresh ones, but it's again nobody nobody brags about being the number one range ball in golf, so. You know, we, we can't say for sure that this is the most popular range ball on the planet. General consensus is that it's probably uh, the best. Maybe maybe next time if we do this, we'll test a single piece range ball, like uh, just a one piece <laughs> to see how that goes. Uh, no. But but we'd run it through Ball Lab. We came back like it was, you know, sort of the very definition of average in terms of quality. And so, you know, we weren't expecting to see anything super weird in terms of, hey, you know, where the hell did that go? It was pretty solid, but super duper spinny. What do you learn from testing a range ball? Why do it? So our thinking there was, you know, one, it's it's a curiosity. It's one of those questions that comes up a lot. We know people even steal range balls and play them. But but ultimately, <laughs> kind of what, what makes it a curiosity for me is I know several fitting locations, you know, a lot of, a lot of sort of off course pro shops with driving range still, they fit with their range balls. And so, yeah, we, we used a, a premium range ball, if such a thing exists. And so it was meant to kind of answer the question, can you be fit reasonably well with a range ball, knowing that in our scenario, we're, 
we're talking about under the absolute best case scenario. And so, you know, again, eyeballing the data, I can say you might be able to get away with it with a driver. Here are some things to think about. But if you're getting fit for an iron, do not, do mm -hmm. not use a range ball. And that's, that is in the best case scenario. So we think about, you know, your, your typical range probably doesn't have brand new premium, <laughs> you know, or, or high quality, if such a thing exists, range balls. So. so if you're getting fit, bring the ball you're going to play with is your advice, correct? Yeah. And the, well, I mean, it gets super tricky because unless you're willing to bring 50 or 60 of your own balls to get a fitting, mm -hmm. it's, it's really difficult in an outdoor environment to be fit with the ball. That's true. That's yeah. true. Here's a question for you. So last time we did this, what, two years ago, um, we really had no expectations. We didn't know what we didn't know. Right. I mean, it was, you know, kind of more so walking into it blind. And that's not just the house you rented where people were already living there. That's a different story. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, maybe you can tell that story in a minute. Shout out but to Wendy and Ray. For thanks, Wendy. Thanks, yeah. Ray. Appreciate the hospitality. Um, what that leads me to is a question of number of holy shit moments. So this time around, how many times did you stop and maybe look at each other or ah. just go, damn. That was wild. In general, less than last time by a fair number. So, you know, the biggest holy shits moments during the, the last test were were balls that went hard in one direction. So, you know, right. The issues we had with Chrome Soft are well documented. I, I tell people about a Mizuno that duck hooked. And we didn't, like, we had balls go left and right. But I wouldn't say, you know, other than, than one or two that were clearly well left or right of the pattern at that time. Mm-hmm. We didn't have like those, you know, that ball is off to in oblivion. Well, I mean, we, we got to negative nine, negative 10 spin axis on a couple of shots. And some of them were within the sevens to nines as well. So I would say... What does that mean, Harry? For people, people yeah. don't get spin axis and numbers positive, negative. Yeah, so it's, it's basically left. It's exactly what Tony's doing. It's a plane. So if zero is flat level... Negative is going to be left on a right. track man. Negative is left. So that means in terms of like a golf ball, if it's flying forward, it's as to it's it does it turn this way versus fly straight? Yeah. Is that what I'm understanding? Okay. Right. So basically, we were seeing it. We have our target line down the um, the driving range, and the, the driver starts the ball on that target line. But some of the negative spin axis that is like negative nine, negative ten. It would start left to target and then draw or power draw left. From where we're looking at it, it looked a long, long way. It looked like 50 yards left, but it's not going to be 50 yards left. It might be 20. When you look at the data, we, we don't know until we dive into it, but it looked a long way left after looking at ball after ball going down the center line. And we, we, we can really see which ones go left and which ones go right. Yeah, gotcha. we saw like like last time we had balls landing. We had a couple land upwards of thirty left, and mm. I think I don't think we had any. We didn't have anything that, like that far no. left this time. So does that mean that balls are getting better from a performance standpoint? Like the, the over the last two years, companies have kind of figured it out a little bit. I mean, it's a broad stroke, Maybe. but for better or worse, right? The the number of total holy shit moments were were way down, and in fact, we didn't really start seeing them until we. We ran our little you know, labs. We decided to to pull together like a an aerodynamics lab, and I think we'll we'll pull everything together. It was basically we we put some mud on some balls and 
We, yeah. uh, we scraped off some dimples and we did, you know, tried to simulate some cart path damage and all that stuff mm-hmm. to try and understand. Never play a cart bath ball. Never. Holy crap. Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. So Harry took one and, and tried to replicate, you know, hey, this hit the cart path pretty hard where it's like you can see some scrapes, but it doesn't look terrible. And, and we teed that up and we, we kind of tracked where we had it. So we put the scrape essentially where we would hit a ball that was, on you know, our seam strike. And it turned hard, hard left. And so mm. we're like, okay, yeah, it's it doesn't take a lot. The theory and the myth about mud balls, if the mud is on the left of your ball, it's going to go right. Okay. The theory holds true. So say the scuff is on the right of the ball. It's going to go left. It goes the opposite direction. Of, it goes the opposite yeah. of where the defect is. The uh, right. the aerodynamic impediment. <laughs> Ooh, that's fancy. So we put one on top and it basically, re- it went straight, but it reacted like the ball was getting knocked out of the air by the wind or the wind knocked it down, something like that. So it really just went like that and came down because it didn't have enough spin to generate um, it staying in the air for a longer period of time. So everything we're talking about now in terms of range balls, refurb balls, mud balls, and everything are labs that we did in addition to the necessary test mm-hmm. of every manufacturer ball that we put through the test. So we we had some myths and questions we wanted to either debunk or answer. Um, in one of those tests, you put some balls in a freezer, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How um, did those do? It, it so it's, it's, it's funny. So... I had done some quick experimenting before I left, just as a curiosity, because we know that temperature impacts compression. And so what I did before I left was I measured a single ball and I put it on the compression tester and that came out right at 100. But I'm like, good, that's easy. I don't even have to, you know, I'm not carrying any ones or anything. I can handle this. And so then I stuck it under, you know, I have a heat lamp on my range hood and the idea is like, all right, what happens if this ball bakes in the sun? for eight minutes and it's probably you know it's more like arizona sun you know direct heat so straight from the freezer too or two no no this was this was still this is room temp sort of room temperature to it so i i left it for eight minutes the idea being hey if, if you're the guy that hits the bomb it may be eight minutes before you hit your ball again so so i took that ball and measured it again and it was down to 90 compression so ten. 10 compression points from baking for about eight minutes and so you know everything we say that at this point says all right that ball should be a little bit slower and that's mm-hmm. ex- I don't know how much yeah. but a little bit slower just eyeballing it that's what we saw yeah and i brought it back to room temperature threw it in the freezer for 10 minutes and measured that and it was at 106. Oh, so once it's been heated and then back to room temperature and then frozen, it changes the compression even more. So, yeah, so it goes the other way. And I was like, so my theory is frozen a little bit faster. Again, compression and speed, there is typically a very tight correlation. Now, what we did... I mean, part of your theory works. It just just didn't quite quit. What we did was put several balls in the freezer in the morning. And then we we took them out in the afternoon and they had like ice and it's really cool. We got some really cool pictures of like ice <laughs> and crystallized. So it, it was like the sort of the frozen equivalent of overcooking the test. We thought, well, this this will be really interesting. And I thought, man, these balls, frozen solid, are going to fly for a mile. And that is not what happened. Interesting. What did happen? The theory of Tony's was true regarding ball speed. So ball speeds jumped up by a couple of miles an hour from what I remember. 
but distance was seriously short. It went nowhere. What did the did the spin just not exist? So yeah, yeah you know, like well, just I, knuckleballs, right? It could well be to do with the aerodynamics of the ball. Because you're not supposed to hit frozen golf balls. They they're not designed to be hit frozen. Yeah. So I don't I don't know what changed. You know, it was it was weird. But you, you like they were definitely firmer. That was very very clear from the sound they were <laughs> making when we hit them. Like hitting the range ball in the hitting bay was unpleasant. Hitting the frozen golf balls made made a range ball probably sound really nice. Like, a, like Nike Sasquatch, unpleasant. Oh, so bad, just so yeah. That was that was a goofy thing we did. That <laughs> let me tell you one su- most surprising ball in the test for me and Tony. I guarantee for Tony too was the Titleist Tour Speed. We were like, why is this going straight and long and consistent? Just obviously looking at it from hitting ball after ball from the Tour Speed, we were like, holy crap, this is really, really good. Yeah, Tour Speed was one that kind of caught me by surprise because it was hanging with with what you would expect to be kind of the, the best balls in the test. And I think you know, I, my surprise and Harry's surprise and anybody else's surprise is probably on Titleist because to a degree to to sort of you know put that where they put it in the marketplace yeah. to to try right. and hit a price point and say yeah you know this ball is is as good as our competitors offerings but it's not really as good as our premium cast urethane offerings because it's so an injection molded molded. this one exactly yeah. saved a little money injection molding like a lot of our competitors do and sort of expected it to perform like you know, sort of a, a lower tier ball in anybody else's manufacturing in any other lineup. Because that's, that's, that's something we see a lot in Ball Lab too, where, you know, I would say, for example, Bridgestone, Tor BX, and Tor BXS mm-hmm. outshine RX and RXS. And certainly with Shrixon, you know, Z Star outshines Q Star. Right. And, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, with, with Tor Speed in particular, it's sort of, well, it's, you know, where does it really fit? And so they arguably did a better job with tour speed than maybe you expected, or or almost maybe they wanted to. In a way, yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> maybe it's yeah, it's a happy accident. Yeah. Well, I think tour speed was kind of almost necessary because AVX is their low compression ball. Right. And AVX is very very weird mm-hmm. in its space. So yeah. Um, yeah. What about the um, refurbs? Because we always preach, don't play refurbished balls. Mm-hmm. Again, we don't have the, the concrete data yet. We're still working on it. But just from your observations that you took away oh at the testing gosh. facility with the robot. All right. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the obvious thing is the ball speed. So It was tragic. You would expect. Nah, I would say the obvious thing, without even hitting a bloody ball, was the look and condition of them was horrendous. All right, what, which refurbs are we talking about? Titleist Pro V1s. Specifically. Okay. reloads yeah, from the, the reload brand so basically you have a pro v1 and you're using it and you say you have a gash in it you cut it's a cut in their ball uh, you don't play it well that just goes back to wherever the factory is and gets painted over restamped and then said refinished where do they get these balls from though like i'm not sending yeah do like people mail them back in like diving into lakes or what you go find them i'm sure like like everywhere else right divers pickers yeah. finders Probably everywhere and anywhere you can think of. I've never bought a refurbished golf ball. I just sort of assumed that they would look kind of new because they've been refinished. And no. It was, hey, let's just, whatever the blemish is, let's just paint over it. Like, does Interesting. Not matter, so. There was some that looked like a, like a 13-year-old boy with pimples all over it because it looked like it was baked in the sun and it had little 
pimples everywhere. Some had huge scuff marks. Uh, it was just, just based on that, I would not ever play them. And then we, and then we hit them. And? And we saw very spinny, ball speeds very low. Ball speed was the thing. Like, Was there any consistency? Because I'd imagine that every reefer ball is different, right? Could yeah. you see any consistency? Um, that's hard to say. Yeah, I'd have to peek at it. But the, the big thing to me was that the there is a strong correlation between compression and ball speed. And so we know, we know what the compression is of a Pro V1. And we know the compression. Uh, and we know that you know, all the balls that are similar to the Pro V1. And so we would, in terms of compression, and so we can assume that that ball speed is very similar. And that's typically what we see. Okay. And then you see a refurb <laughs> Pro V1, and the ball speed is much more similar to a lower compression ball, like a like a Chrome Soft X or a Q-Star Tour, RX, RXS, that kind of thing. So it was huh. on paper. And again, I, I brought them home. I'll throw them on the compression tester when I have some time. But on paper, it's a mid-compression ball that produces the ball speed of a lower compression sure. ball. And so you're like, well, that's that's weird. Hmm. Be interesting to measure them, see what we're working with, cut them, and then, you know, see if we can explain why. But the most yeah. interesting thing is just obviously looking at it by placing a ball on a tee for 2,500 shots um, and then watching the other 2,500 shots. I would say the big question that everyone's probably asking, is Chrome Soft better? And visually... I should let you host this show because that was one of my well, next questions. Well, there you questions. go. Boom. Sheepers. But visually, they seemed a lot better compared to the 2019 um, test. They didn't go wildly okay. offline. Yes, there might have been a, a, a squirrely one here and there, but we saw that with quite a few little manufacturers. So yeah, and here's... they seem better, which is the main question. Just on the eyeball Just test, on the, yeah. yeah, we haven't even looked at the data but just yeah, an definitely, eyeball. Definitely pass the eyeball test as you're hitting them, right? You're kind of peeking at the track man and looking at the dispersion patterns. And, you know, if anything, we had probably, we had like a single CSX that was a little squirrely. And I'm not going to worry about a single ball from every, anybody mm -hmm. at this point, but. I like this word, squirrely. Me too. When you say squirrely, does it mean it's going just not where it's supposed to? Yeah. A little left, a little right. Yeah, kind of leaky. I'm trying to figure out like, how do you, kind of take a look at the entirety of the pattern and, you know, what was going on at a given time in the test weather-wise and determine, you know, did that ball have some squirrel in it? So what, what's the squirrel factor? So <laughs> The squirrel kind of... coefficient? Tony, for you, obviously, we would have to look at the data, but the most disappointing ball for me was the TaylorMades. It, it mm. seemed that it wasn't consistent based on when we hit one, we looked at the track man, we looked at the dispersion on the track man, whether we can correlate that to weather or whatever is a different matter. But based on eyeballing it, it, there was some left, some right, some short, some long. It wasn't anywhere near a tight dispersion of what we're used to seeing with other manufacturers. Yeah, I think with, with the TaylorMades in particular, it's, I mean, something was noteworthy almost about, you know, we yeah. tested three balls. And so Harry was right for sure. I mean, there was, we did see a little bit of squirrel in the TP5. How much squirrel on a scale of one to 10? Are we at like a nine squirrel? It was enough to be like, oh shit, <laughs> we should go get that ball. So at least like a seven and up of squirrel. And it wasn't just once, it was pretty consistent seeing that ball. Yeah, there, there's some squirrel in that. And again, we'll see you know, once, once I crunch the data and go, where is, where is the pattern for this 
this squirrel incident, where was the rest of the pattern? Was this something that was sort of moving against the pattern at the time? And that's, that's kind of how I'm going to approach this. But so that was interesting. We saw some squirrel there. I was, I was really surprised by exactly like how much spin we saw mm -hmm. off the TP5. Okay. Um, and that's, again, this is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It's just observationally for that category. I think it's, it's probably one of the spinniest balls in, you know, and, and I guess that category is sort of legitimate tour ball. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, and again, neither good nor bad. It's just a, from a performance perspective, one of the highest spinning, probably the highest spinning among a ball brand that a serious golfer should contemplate playing. That's um, <laughs> probably how I would phrase that. If you're a low spin golfer, that might be a ball that you need that spin. So it might perform yeah. well for you. So. Right. And then the other one, the, the tour response, mm. TaylorMade's, you know, that's, that's their low compression feel preference urethane but yeah lots of squirrels a lot of squirrels i would say that that it's sort of the opposite where it borders oh. on super duper low spin mm -hmm. and again mm. eyeball just starting to look at the data but that one was one where off the mid-speed driver maybe where you know we were typically in the 23 2400 range you know i might have seen a couple like 1900 so you know maybe wow. the only ball that kind of dipped below 2000 so and again that that can work especially like if you're if you're a faster swing speed guy who just really really wants a softer ball you look at that and go all right you know maybe that super duper low spin can help you overcome the compression penalty a little mm. bit so lots of give and take hey i've got a question were there any balls that, because we tested driver, iron, and wedge, were there any balls that did significantly better with the driver or any of those three than they did with the, the other clubs? That's really tough to say, just because it's we have so many shots. It's hard to really compare just by seeing it. So ask that question again when we have the data yeah. is your answer. Okay. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, what I would say based on a, on a cursory look at the data, Right, we know that that the golf industry in general has a a tendency and and probably a tendency born of necessity to oversimplify concepts. So, you know, when when you think about how a golf ball gets described, it's by a launch and spin attribute, right? It's it's high launch or it's low launch or mid launch, and it's you know the same for spin relative to something that they don't necessarily tell you. And so, one of the things that kind of having moved on from the squirrel factor of, of last year, last time test to kind of look at individual metrics and, and really see what pops. The one thing that stood out to me was, and this is at the high swing speed. So I postulate, and I could be wrong that what's the high swing speed, 115, right? 115 mile an hour driver swing speed okay. is typically that's where you see the biggest separation. And so from the highest launching ball to the lowest launching ball, Give me a guess. What do you think? What's the difference? In 115? Yep. Um, I'm going to say the biggest separation is six degrees of launch. Harry, you got a guess? I would want to say three. What do you got, Miranda? I plead the fifth, so we'll go five. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the correct answer is 0. 0.6 Yeah, degrees. I was going to say, I don't think Holy it's shit. that 
big of a so, difference. So it's literally one tenth of my answer. <laughs> yeah, and so you know when I when I think about this, Miranda Miranda's hair starts to fall out when I start talking about box box and whisker plots. But please you know, just I'm, don't put it in the article, I'm, and we're fine. I know. I'm sure I can generate some box and whisker plots that would show some statistical significance, but somewhere in that 0.6 degree range. And again, you know, tour players super duper discerning. So right. you know that that 0.6 probably means something to them. But I do, as I started to look at other numbers, like, you know, so we get some really cool stuff from TrackMan. So, you know, we get peak height, which we get everything. But TrackMan also tells us how far downrange a ball achieved the peak height. So, you know, did it go like this? Did it kind of fly more like that? And that's where you really, where you do see some differences is hmm. what was the peak height? How far downrange was that peak height? And then what was the descent angle? So there are discernible differences to be to be found there, but it really I think the right word is trajectory versus versus launch. But if you mm. if you put trajectory on a golf ball box, uh, you're going to have probably a good healthy percentage of your buyers. <laughs> yeah, it's four it's four syllables. You got no chance. Like after two. Yeah. Okay. Trajectory, great. But how does it launch? And and the the answer <laughs> appears to be it launches the same as every other ball in terms of just that initial kind of that take. So Tony, this leads me to a question though, and you you alluded to this a little bit with the oversimplification of the industry, and and sometimes that's really good, right, to take a complex you know concept and make it simple and understandable and relatable. But you know, I feel like on commercials lately, and really within the last two three months, maybe you're seeing ball manufacturers talk about this idea and and like TaylorMade says there's one ball that's better for all that's kind of their tagline now right and and Callaway saying something similar around you know kind of better for, better for every shot or whatever yeah whatever it was I think you went into it on the last episode kind of why that irks some of us just from a historical standpoint but from a consistency and data standpoint what do you make of ball companies going that route? And is that something that we can fairly evaluate potentially based on the data around us? Because this seems like an oversimplification to me that at face value feels a little bit nefarious. I mean, it's it's absolute nonsense. Like, And again, I will tell you based on but what I've seen in Ball Lab, right? That's my baseline in terms of quality right. and consistency. Ball Lab, there, there are no environmental factors with Ball Lab, right? You don't have to worry about wind. From baseline in Ball Lab, I can tell you confidently that, you know, if you were talking in terms of a, an entire lineup, Titleist makes the highest quality ball. There's there's no doubt in my mind. There's, there's literally nothing I believe in more in the equipment world than that simple statement. Ooh, I'm, can I get that on a plaque? But within that, that, that doesn't mean ever that a Titleist ball is, you know, better for everyone. Because, again, looking at, at the variety of launch conditions and, and, you know, again, if you want to talk about the total impact of dimples, compression, and the relationship between layers, that's what gives you your launch spin and your speed. There are niches, there are places in the bell curve where, where a Titleist ball isn't going to be the best. You know, the Titleist will tell you we can do a pretty good job or a really good job of fitting everybody. But if you're looking again, so a guy who would legitimately fit into something like a Kirkland, right? Mm-hmm. Titleist doesn't make that ball. Something, right. Somebody who legitimately fits in a tour response, Titleist doesn't make that ball. And there are situations where left dash, right? Right. 
there are companies who make pretty good balls and balls that fit a lot of golfers. They don't make that ball. They don't make, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, you know, they're, they're just dots on a chart and they're kind of all over the place. And you can say, yeah, most people are here. And so, yeah, if you're kind of one of the most people, chances are, you know, you're, you're going to be in that pro V one window and it's, it's going to be tough to beat that certainly from a quality perspective. And unless you're really looking for something super nuanced, you, know, you may not be able to discern the performance difference, but that's the guy yeah. right in the meaty part of the bell curve. Once right. you start up and yeah, down right and towards here, the I mean, edges, like that's, that's what I would say yeah. when it regards to, to seeing balls go offline and get different spin rates, blah, blah, blah. The higher swing speed golfer is going to see more of a drastic change in dispersion, spin, distance between ball to ball, depending on what Absolutely. It, when it comes sure. to the middle swing speeds, you don't see as much in the slower swing speeds. You don't see that uh, enough for mm-hmm. it to really matter. So that's what I was seeing during the test is obviously the faster you swing it, the, the ball really is more important than anything for faster swing speeds. Now, when it comes to middle, yes, it is important, but it's not as important and slower is the same yeah. kind of thing. Obviously, if, you, if you've got a Kirkland and it's spinning like 6,000 off a three iron, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a good ball. Good, bad, or otherwise, speed always accentuates your differences. Yeah. All right, we're going to revisit the ball test uh, once we have the results and we can really break it down to you from a datacratic point of view. But while we wrap up this discussion, Harry, Tony, I want to know your biggest takeaway from the trip to Arizona. It can be ball test related, my golf spy, career related. What's What was your biggest thing that you came home with? Uh, I would say... <laughs> One week less of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Scottsdale National is like a carpet. It is phenomenal. It just mm. it's it's like a just a wonderland. It's Disney World for golf. It's just so cool. Um, with regards to the ball test, my mind hurts just thinking about putting another ball on a tee. Uh, is is a painful experience of mine, and I might need to go see someone <laughs> about it. Sign Harry up for therapy. But just. Until you see it firsthand, how good some of these manufacturers are at getting consistent ball after ball and the same ball flight, the same spin within like a really acceptable number. Until you see it, you don't believe it. You can be told time and time again, but until you really see it, you're like, oh shit, why would I ever think anything different about playing another ball brand? Tony, how about you? What was your biggest takeaway? I just wanted to go home. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I guess you know. I guess it's it's one of those things where, because of of what we have to do, because of of what our readers want to see, right? They they want to see the Kirklands in the test. They want to mm-hmm. see, you know, we we tested. I want to say thirty seven models. Yeah, I want to say that's. And you know if. If we could give the readers everything they absolutely wanted to, we, you know, probably have had to test seventy. And I'm just like, man, I sure wish we could really just dig in and focus twelve. <laughs> so like, it's it's sort of the if you want to lump that into kind of a takeaway, it's just like the magnitude of what we do is it just it creates a lot of hurdles, and we man, we we fight hard to overcome them for sure. It's great for the consumer. And we learn a lot from it too. Yeah, absolutely. My takeaway is first, 
congratulations on a job well done to the two of you. But um, I was supposed to be there and unfortunately last minute wasn't able to go. Um, but my role would have been to manage the content team. And so I just want to give a shout out to Bennett and Matt for making sure that all of our readers and consumers got to observe the test as closely as you could, because I think a lot of times it goes unsaid the number of hours that we put behind all of our tests. So I'm glad, as boring as people thought the live stream was, that they were able to tune in and check in with you guys and really see the extent to which we dedicate ourselves to testing. So that was one of my biggest takeaways. Job well done to the content team. Um, and also a big shout out to Will, the engineer. Mm-hmm. I think he deserves a really big hug. <laughs> he probably needed one too. We're getting some package put together for you because... The five thousand shots to watch it was just why, why, why? Yeah, I mean, Will Will was a rock yeah, star. He awesome. he knew after kind of the the planning call, he knew what he was getting into, and he didn't quit before the test. So yeah, that's a guy, <laughs> man. <laughs> so just like, all right, game on. So yeah, he yeah. he gritted out with us every step of the way. And so, so big so. thank you to Will. Um, and so like I said, we're gonna revisit the ball test once we have the data. But before we go today, I wanted to um play a word game with you guys. Ooh. If I said Bushnell and Foresight, you would say Match made in heaven. Chris, what do you got? I would say um, Briars and Ben and Jerry's. What? I hear two companies that are absolutely at the top of their respective portions of the industry. Boom, putting them together. I can't. I cannot wait to hear why. Why you're mentioning those two together? <laughs> Tony Foresight and Bushnell. What? Are, what are your thoughts? I would say like Jersey Mike's oh, and yes. All right. So we're no more word games. And let me take that note. We're really bad at word games. What would you think if Bushnell and Foresight teamed up to put together a personal launch monitor? I know you were all playing along with me there and you know that it's happening. What are our thoughts, initial thoughts of just the idea? Because that's all we have is the concept right now. We don't really know much else. Well, if it's if they're going to use the same algorithms as Foresight, it's going to blow everyone out of the window. I mean, depending on the price, if the price is way too high, then what's the point? But I guarantee they've been strategically looking at the personal launch monitor space and letting everyone do it and see if it catches fire. And it has for a lot of golfers because they want to get those data numbers. And they said, ah, we'll do it. I think they're going to do really, really well and be very accurate if they use the same kind of algorithms. Tony, you've said we're about five years away from personal launch monitors being really good. Do you think that this is the next step towards it? These are two companies that do really well. Absolutely. And I've I've said it before, right? The, the issue with the current stuff that's out there is the tiny Doppler mm-hmm. chips. Yeah. Doppler mm-hmm. as it is, like big TrackMan Doppler still struggles from time to time with spin, does some weird things that you have to kind of account for. And that's why like some of them don't even bother to give you a spin number because, you know. It's so hard. It's effectively at the end of the day, a lot of it is is just an algorithm. Mm-hmm. And I don't see it getting better again with these tiny Doppler chips. It's, it's sort of a limitation of the technology already. And then you've kind of shrunk it down. You know, when you look at kind of the, the Mevo pluses and those all Doppler based, I'm always like, yeah, this is, you know, chances are this is as good as this is ever going to get. And the rest is just kind of some math behind the scenes. Do we know if this is going to be small Doppler based? This is going to be a camera based. It's got to be if it's foresight. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking at the unit, which is yeah. that one weird picture that they just slapped up on their website. Yeah. We've got one 
photo. Yeah. Foresight's not going to take a position that says, you know, for, for now two generations of product, we believe that camera based launch monitors are fundamentally better. Uh, now we're going to do something else. No, right. this is, this is right. going to be camera based. I have higher hopes for this because I believe in the tech. I think especially in a smaller unit, a camera system has, has much greater potential, is more viable, has the potential to deliver real accuracy in a way that a Doppler system doesn't. And so, you know, it's going to come down to how accurate, how consistent, and then anytime we're talking about, so let's take this technology we sell for $18,000, give or take. And bundle it in something that's gonna that's gonna retail for less than five, and so yeah, you can expect you're gonna trade some accuracy, trade some consistency, and there's just gonna be things that they don't give you. Yeah, they're not gonna shoot themselves in the foot to to eliminate their own products. I don't think it's gonna give you everything that a foresight GC quad's gonna give you. No, definitely not. Definitely not. But for personal use, it's all you yeah. need. Yeah, I think it's gonna give you enough to base your game off it. My expectations for this are really high um, because you don't put two brands like that together and these two brands put that out there without, like I said, sitting back and, and observing and seeing kind of what the industry is doing. And so you take, you know, Foresight, which is the absolute leader in enterprise grade launch monitors, right? And, and we're seeing this trend more and more. I mean, go down to any tour event and... I don't know what the ratio is, but it's changed dramatically. It's changed dramatically. And GC Quad is the launch monitor of choice for professional golfers, fitters, etc. And you take that. Okay, so we have that as a camera-based system. Some people may or may not know this, but TrackMan, when they get their algorithms and they're able to get everything dialed in, they use Foresight software to do that, right? To help mm. calibrate. That's the word I was looking for. When they're calibrating their algorithms, they're they're using Foresight software. And then on the other side, you have Bushnell, which is absolutely at the very front of the optics industry. And so in terms of using maybe fewer cameras, better glass, better optics, et cetera, you know, I would expect this to be a significant step forward. It has to be. You know, if they come out with something that's, you know, say just as as good as, let's say, like Rapsodo or something like that, then what's the point, right? They need to come mm -hmm. out with something that is at least one significant step ahead. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if that means that it's a little bit more expensive. You know, if if five hundred is the current amount, maybe it's maybe it's nine hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks. It's not going to be five thousand, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was several hundred or, or even $500 more to also create some justification for the differences and some perception. I think if it comes in at under two grand, I think people would buy it. I think if it's anything more, I don't think people are going to buy it. Well, it becomes, you know, who is it going after, mm -hmm. right? Is right. it is it? Is it taking on your Mevos and your Rapsodos? I think to be better than those costs money. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the question for me is, does this sit somewhere between that and a SkyTrack, which is a, a pretty decent consumer grade launch monitor by, by any reasonable metric? Or, or is that what they're going after? Are they going to go right at SkyTrack and say, well, hey, we can do this better. We can overcome some of the liabilities, the, the efficiencies with this particular unit. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to, to see where it slots in. Yep. Of the personal launch monitors, consumer grade, whatever you want to call it. This this to me is the most encouraging and, and a good bit of that just comes from understanding the the limitations of Doppler and a small form factor and knowing what you can do with a camera-based unit. So but at the end of the day, the same thing, you know, like how are you going to use it if yep. you're just hitting range balls with them? 
what do you, you know, what do you really? Unless they're pinnacle range so. balls and you're not hitting irons, yeah. then you might yeah, be that's okay. Right. Unless you're hitting. Yeah. <laughs> well, as of right now, uh, we've been told it's coming out in the fall. We're hoping to get our hands on it a little bit sooner so that we can get um, some sort of review together for you as you're looking at it in the fall and considering buying it. So we'll get you all the info on this bad boy as soon as we can. Guys, thank you. Welcome back to Tony and Harry. Uh, we miss you while you were in Arizona. So until next time, we out. Yeah.